This morning, God's Word comes to us from Genesis chapter 6. Genesis 6. We're going to be reading just the first 13 verses of this chapter. Genesis 6, beginning at verse 1, what we hear now is God's word. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the earth, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end to all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Here we in the reading of God's holy word. If you have a Psalter hymnal at home, uh, I encourage you to turn to page 103 in the back section. Page 103, this is Canons of Dort, the third and fourth heads of doctrine. And this morning I'm going to read just Articles 3, 4, and 5. Articles 3, 4, and 5. Article 3. Therefore, all men are conceived in sin and are by nature children of wrath, incapable of saving good, prone to evil, dead in sin, and in bondage thereto. And without the regenerating grace of the Holy Spirit, they are neither able nor willing to return to God, to reform the depravity of their nature, or to dispose themselves to reformation. Article 4. There remain, however, in man since the fall, the glimmerings of natural light, whereby he retains some knowledge of God of natural things, and of the difference between good and evil, and shows some regard for virtue and for good outward behavior. But so far is this light of nature from being sufficient 
to bring him to a saving knowledge of God and to true conversion that he is incapable of using it aright, even in things natural and civil. Nay, further, this light, such as it is, man in various ways renders wholly polluted and hinders in unrighteousness by doing which he becomes inexcusable before God. Article 5. In the same light, we are to consider the law of the Decalogue delivered by God to his peculiar people, the Jews, by the hands of Moses. For though it reveals the greatness of sin and more and more convinces men thereof, yet it neither points out a remedy nor imparts strength to extricate him from this misery, but being weak through the flesh, leaves the transgressor under the curse. Man cannot, by this law, obtain saving grace. Well, after a brief uh, break for uh, Palm Sunday and Good Friday and Easter, we return now uh, to our series on the Canons of Dort. And this morning, we move forward to the third and fourth heads of doctrine entitled The Corruption of Man, His Conversion to God, and the Manner Thereof. I think it's worth noting, at least in passing, that these are always referred to as the third and fourth head of doctrine together. We studied the first head of doctrine, unconditional election. We studied the second head of doctrine, limited atonement. We will study the, the fifth head of doctrine, perseverance of the saints. But heads three and four are always referred to together, the third and fourth head of doctrine. Now there are a number of theories why that might be, perhaps a number of historical reasons why that might be. Um, I have a suggestion myself as to why we always talk about the third and fourth head together. Often there's a challenge to the Reformed faith that um, all you guys want to talk about is sin. You guys talk about sin all the time. Now, if it is the case, it is certainly not reflected in our confessions. If we think about the Heidelberg Catechism, there are only three Lord's Days in the sin section before going on to the salvation section. And even here in the Canons of Dort, talking about our total depravity is not separated from talking about the irresistible grace of God. We don't want to to be overwhelmed by our sin, overwhelmed by our depravity, but right away speak of God's grace. In fact, in the third and fourth heads of doctrine, the first five articles are about depravity. Articles 6 through 17 are about God's grace. The, the goal of talking about or preaching on total depravity is not to make us feel bad to feel badly about our sin. But it is to remind us of who we are so we can see more clearly the glorious gospel of God's grace. We have talked about 
some controversial doctrines in this series. When we talk about election, who is it that chooses for salvation, we saw that both the canons and the scripture remind us it is God who chooses us. Now, many evangelicals would disagree. They would have a controversy over that. We saw with regard to limited atonement, the question, for whom did Christ die? Did he die for all? We would say no. He died only for his own. And we looked at a number of scripture texts to demonstrate that biblical truth reflected in the canons. That's a controversial doctrine. Today we come to total depravity. And it hardly seems necessary to try to prove this doctrine, as it is evidenced everywhere. All we have to do is turn on the evening news and hear stories of crime and stories of war and stories of depravity and stories of hurt. And we say total depravity is obvious. It's seen all around us. But it is often, it is often misunderstood. So we're going to look at this doctrine of total depravity and God's grace from a biblical point of view. Because we have to understand the problem biblically if we are to see the solution biblically. When we talk about total depravity, and we begin to talk about, about that with those who ask about the Reformed faith, one of the most common uh, responses we get when we say total depravity, man is totally depraved, people say, yeah, I don't believe that, because I know somebody. I know somebody who is not a Christian, but he's a really good guy. He's a really good husband. He's a really good father. He's a great neighbor. How can you say Man is totally depraved. When we say total depravity, we do not mean that man is as bad as he possibly can be. We do not mean everyone is an axe murderer, everyone is a thief, everyone is a liar. We do not mean that when man fall, fell into sin, he lost his humanity and became a beast. Not that he's as bad as he possibly could be. That would be absolute depravity. And people say, well, now you're splitting hairs. Absolute depravity, total depravity. There is a language to our theology. And it's an important language to make these distinctions. Man is not absolutely depraved, as bad as he possibly could be. But he is totally depraved. When we say man is totally depraved, we do not mean that he does no apparent good. Now, we have to be very careful when we talk about man doing good we know that our Heidelberg Catechism defines what is good for us. Those things which are good are those which arise out of true faith, conform to God's law, and are done for His glory. Now, of course, on that definition, the unbeliever never does any good, for it does not arise out of true faith or is not done for God's glory. But that does not mean 
that he is not able to show an external morality. What does our confession say? Article 4. There remains, however, in man since the fall, the glimmerings of natural light, whereby he retains some knowledge of God, of natural things, and of the difference between good and evil, and shows some regard for virtue and for good outward behavior. When we say that man is totally depraved, we don't mean he's unable to do any external good, any civic good. Our unbelievers can be good neighbors. They can be good husbands. They can be good wives externally. But our confession goes on in Article 4. But so far is this light of nature from being sufficient to bring him to a saving knowledge of God and to true conversion that he is incapable of using it aright, even in things natural and civil. Nay, further, this light, such as it is, man in various ways renders wholly polluted and hindered in unrighteousness by doing which he becomes inexcusable before God. It is an external good only. It does not arise from the heart. It does not arise from a devotion to God. So when we say, well, some people appear to be good, that does not in any way violate the doctrine of total depravity. We don't mean man is not able to do apparent or external good. When we say total depravity, we mean every part of man is affected by sin. Every part of man affected by sin. That was the description of man in Noah's time. Verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Every part of him stained with sin. His thoughts, his will, his words... His actions, every part of him stained by sin. But notice what the text says, every intention of the thoughts of his heart was evil continually. Not that he acted on every intention. Not that he was as bad as he possibly could be. That's why I use the word pervasive. The pervasive nature of total depravity. My thoughts, my will, my emotions, every part stained with sin. That's our understanding, the biblical understanding of total depravity. As I said, there's, there's, there's abundant evidence for this depravity in the world around us. I, I have a statistic. Um, I, I know statistics can be used in a variety of ways, but this statistic is about the history of the world and war. And in the past 100 years, children in the past 100 years, only in one out of every 11 years was there not a war somewhere in the world. In the last 100 years, only in one 
out of every 11 years was there not a war going on somewhere. 90% of the time in the last 100 years, the world has been at war in some way, in some place. That's evidence of the depravity of man. We could look at crime statistics. Um, we see crimes going on around us in our town, in Chino, in Ontario. We see, we see crime even in small towns. Now, I grew up in a small town. And, and I remember very, very clearly when I was growing up, there was a brutal murder in the town in which I grew up. And people were shocked. But I, I, I can't help but think part of their shock was not at the brutality, but part of their shock was it took place here in a small town, in a town filled with good people, in a town where there's churches on every other corner. It happened here. There is evil in the world, in all of the world. We think about, about the issues that our nation faces. We think about a woman's so-called right to choose. The right to kill an, a defenseless, unborn child. And that right is legal and that right is protected by our nation. Do we have to wonder about the depravity of man? We see the states of marriage in our country institutionalizing what God calls an abomination, marriage between two of the same gender. And that right is legal and that right is protected. The depravity of man is all around us. Some suggest that the reason for this, and they often try to find worldly reasons for, for why man is, is depraved, the worldly reasons are, well, man is a product of his environment. Someone says, well, I, I was just raised this way, born this way. I certainly can't be held responsible for, for the way I was brought up. It's not my fault. I am the way I am. It's our environment. Some suggest, no, no, it's a matter of education. You see, people just don't know better. If we only had a better educational system, if we taught them right and wrong, then they would do what is right. But the trouble is when we look for, for answers from a worldly perspective, we only find ourselves getting deeper and deeper in trouble. The Bible gives us evidence, biblical evidence, for the depravity of man. Again, from our text, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. This is not an external matter. This is a heart matter. A heart that is turned away from God. A heart that desires its own way rather than God's way. The Bible speaks of the depravity of our hearts. Maybe make a note to yourself later today. Look up Jeremiah 17. In Jeremiah 17, verse 9, the heart 
is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The heart, deceitful above all things. We are so capable of deceiving ourselves, making our bad look like good, making our evil look like righteousness. The heart is deceitful above all things. And we read that that terrible litany from Romans chapter 3 this morning. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And in their paths are ruin and misery, misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. It's an ugly picture, but an accurate picture of man left to himself. If we think we need more evidence for the fallenness of man, we look simply to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. The holy, righteous Son of God, condemned and killed by sinful man. The crime of the ages. The Son of God put on trial and found guilty. Now the evidence for our Total depravity is all around us. Although the most frightening evidence that I find is not that which is in the news, is not that which are in the texts of Scripture. I think the most frightening evidence I find of total depravity is that which remains in my own heart. I see all too clearly the sin that resides there. And I know if I am honest with myself, there is no sin that I could not commit. The evidence is overwhelming. Hearts bent on evil. This is the, the abundant evidence of the depravity in the world. And yet it is the biblical understanding. And so, so we need to make sure that we recognize there are some real consequences to this proper understanding of total depravity. It has consequences in how we deal with unbelievers. It has consequences in our evangelism. Since our depravity is a matter of our heart, a heart that is fallen, a heart that is sinful, a heart that is unable to act, then in our evangelism, we don't ask the unbeliever to do something. Look, you need to keep the law. 
You need to be a better husband. You need to be a better father. You need to be a better citizen. We don't ask the unbeliever to do that, which he cannot do. He's fallen, he's sinful, unable to act. Now, next Lord's Day, we're going to talk about man's free will. So come back next Sunday as we talk about that. Today I'm simply going to say man is fallen and he's sinful. So we don't ask the unbeliever to do that which he cannot do. This is referenced in Article 3, excuse me, Article 5, regarding the law of God. Now we know the law is good, it's right, it's pleasant. But Article 5 says, in the same light, we are to consider the law of the Decalogue delivered by God to his peculiar people, the Jews, by the hands of Moses. For though it reveals the greatness of sin and more and more convinces man thereof, yet as it neither points out a remedy nor imparts strength to extricate him from his misery, but being weak through the flesh, leaves the transgressor under the curse, man cannot by this law obtain saving grace. We don't tell the unbeliever you need to keep the law. You need to keep the law in order to be saved. Just do these things and you will be saved. No, we don't tell the unbeliever what he has to do. We tell the unbeliever what Christ has done. That Christ has done everything necessary for our salvation. Christ came to earth. He dwelt among us. He took the sins of each and every one of his people. He was condemned by God, hung on a cross. He died to pay for the debt of our sin. No, you don't have to do anything. Simply believe what Christ has done. This is the glory. This is the beauty of the gospel and the glory of God's grace. We acknowledge our sin. We acknowledge we can't save ourselves. We acknowledge Christ's complete work and simply put our faith and our trust in Him. And that's the call of the gospel once again this morning. If you are still asking yourself, what must I do? What do I have to do to get right with God? It's not being a better father, a being a better wife, being a better mother. It is simply believing what Jesus Christ has done for you and knowing the glory of God's grace. This truth of our total depravity and the grace of God that Christ has done everything has practical consequences not only for how we approach the unbeliever but how we as believers live. Knowing that that the pervasive nature of sin has been completely dealt with gives us great, should give us, great humility. We have done nothing. We've done nothing but contribute to the depth of our sin. We were not good enough that God chose us. We were not smart enough that we chose Him. We're the recipients of this glorious gift. We're the recipients of God's grace. Salvation comes from outside. It comes from another. It comes from Jesus Christ. We simply receive by faith. It's not something that comes from inside. 
something that comes from outside. We must have great humility before God. We have done nothing to earn standing with him. Christ has done it all. Great humility and great thanksgiving. Since it was nothing we had done. Great thanksgiving for what God has done. He did not leave us fallen, sinful, to try to find our own way. But he sent his son to us. He sent his son to the earth to pay for our sins. We are thankful. We are grateful. And it is that gratitude then that motivates us to keep the law. We don't keep the law so we can be saved. Don't tell the unbeliever, keep the law. But having been saved, humbled before God at the work of Jesus Christ, thankful for what he has done, we now say, how can I show you? How can I show you my devotion? And God graciously gives us his law to teach us how we should live. Oh, it's amazing, the the blending of total depravity and God's grace. We talk about these two together. I I hope today, after hearing about the depravity of man, its pervasive nature, the evidence outside of us and inside of us, we don't leave feeling badly. That's not the goal today, to leave feeling badly because of our sin. The goal is to recognize our sin, to see the greatness of the glory of God and His grace, and to leave rejoicing, not in what we have done, but in what Christ has done, and to leave with a greater devotion, a greater love for God, and a greater desire to live in a way that brings glory and honor to Him. May God so work in our hearts on this Lord's day. Let's join together in prayer. Lord our God, your word is all too clear at times as it points out our sin, as it points out the depravity that remains in our hearts. And yet it is also abundantly clear about the work of your Son, Jesus Christ. Oh, we thank you for your grace your grace and your mercy, which would send him to die for us, that would send him to do everything necessary for our salvation, and that would simply call us to believe on his finished work. Oh, we we leave today, O God, rejoicing in the salvation that is ours in Christ Jesus, and give us, O God, a greater love and devotion and desire to show our gratitude to you in the way that we live in our homes, in our schooling, in our work, in every part of our life. Hear our prayer, O God, for Jesus' sake. Amen.